From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Special welcome to all of our listeners around the country on... 150 affiliates. Summer is a great time for kids and adults to enjoy the warmer weather and get outdoors. Activities like biking and rollerblading, swimming and boating can be a great way to fill your summer days. But with increased activity comes increased risk of injury and visits to the emergency department. On today's program, we'll get some summertime safety tips from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn about the importance of play, how even adults can reap the benefits of time on the playground or a game of tag. And we'll hear from an expert on how to avoid salmonella and keep foods safe in the summertime heat. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Summertime is here, finally. And the 4th of July holiday, it's not too far away either. And summer means that kids are out of school and it's time for fun in the sun and family vacations. Summer activities like biking, swimming, boating, or even riding a four-wheeler. You got one of those? No. The one for your kids, no. I bet. <laughs> riding a four-wheeler can be a lot of fun, but they also require some common sense and a little caution to stay safe and healthy. Emergency departments are busy during summer months as kids and adults are more active, which means more injuries. Here to discuss summertime safety is Mayo Clinic emergency medicine physician, Dr. Luke Wood. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wood. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Luke Wood, so great to have you on the program. Your father and I worked together for so many years, and your mom and dad have been friends of mine for so long, and you worked in the operating room? Yeah, that was uh, 1999 and 2000, I think. Yeah, amazing. Then you went to medical school after that? I did, yeah. And where'd you go? I went to uh, University of New England. And good? Yeah. And then you, you, were, you stayed out there and were practicing in the emergency room out there for a while? Yeah, I did my uh, emergency medicine residency out in Portland, Maine, and then I was out in practice out there for about four years. How did you choose emergency medicine? Um, I liked the variety of uh, kind of the different things that you saw. You kind of took care of the whole person and uh, everything from, you know, injured toes to psychiatric emergencies and everything in between. And the other good thing about it, too, isn't it, is the regular hours. I mean, you oh, work sure. at 8 or 10 or 12-hour shift, and you're done. You oh, don't have yeah. to worry about them when you go home because somebody else has taken them over. Well, you know, the shift work is a part of it. Uh, it's not doesn't always really jive with your circadian rhythm necessarily. But uh, So you worked uh, different shifts? Correct. So uh, you might work overnight, and then you might work during the day, and 12-hour shifts usually, 10 or 12? Tim, you know, I work both here in Rochester and over in Red Wing, and so in, in the community sites, oftentimes you do a little bit longer shifts, like 12 hours. Here in Rochester, where it's kind of busy around the clock, we typically do eight, nine-hour shifts. Okay, I have one really important question before we get started with the, with the meat of this program and, and safety in the summer, and that is, how come you have to wait so long in the emergency room? <laughs> <laughs> right off the bat. Welcome yeah. to the I mean, program. We want to hear it right from the horse about what are you doing back there? It's oh, you know, uh it's it's a popular place to be, especially during the summertime. Um unfortunately, you know, uh in 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 the summer months we always see a surge in patient volume, so that typically correlates with a little bit longer waiting times. But um we try to do our best to kind of move people through and um kind of sort out the really sick people from people who uh, uh might just need a quick evaluation. And that's a big part of the problem, isn't it? There are a lot of people who are there who don't have a true emergency. 
True, yeah, and uh, the the causes for that are pretty complex. Um, sure. Probably a little bit beyond our time here, but um, but that's true. We see kind of a lot of primary care issues in the emergency department as well as uh, true emergencies. All right, so let's talk about summertime. I would imagine that no matter what the season is, in the winter time, you've probably got other issues that people come to the emergency department for, but. Uh, is summertime the most active at the ER? Typically speaking, I mean, if you look at uh, emergency department volumes across the country, I would say that most emergency departments are going to see a surge in, in summer volume. Uh, it's probably a little bit different when you're kind of in the mountains of Colorado and that type of thing where they get more of kind of a winter tourism. Um, but uh, here here in the upper Midwest, uh, summers are definitely the busiest time of year for, for us in the emergency department. And, and what are you seeing? What, what What's a typical day for you? Uh, the most common in things that you see? Well, I mean, uh, typically in the emergency department, just regardless of the season, you see your fair amount of, you know, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, chest pain, that type of thing. Kind of in, in the summertime in particular, you're seeing um, uh, a bit more of people kind of getting injured or, or becoming sick because of uh, exposure to some outdoor elements that are maybe not totally prepared for. Uh, everything from sunburn to dehydration. Um, we see kind of an increase in traumatic-related injuries uh, during the summer because people are out uh, um, uh, just on the roads more often. Um, oftentimes people are uh, imbibing to uh, different degrees as well, which can uh, certainly affect uh, rates of traumatic injuries. Um, and so, uh, and so in the, uh, during the summer, we always see kind of an increase in both kind of uh, more mild uh, injuries related to summertime uh, activities, tick bites, uh, running into poison ivy, contact dermatitis, that type of thing, and then more serious thing like uh, car accidents and ATV accidents. Motorcycles? Motorcycles, too. You don't have a motorcycle, do you? I do not own a motorcycle, no. Do you know any emergency room physician who does? Um, maybe. 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 Yeah, but, but you don't have to work there very long to know you don't want a motorcycle, and you want your kids to have a motorcycle. Got it. <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know, ooh. I would yeah. think that... That bring uh, back some bad memories. <laughs> that's, that's a good advice right there. I would think that um, because it is summertime that heat-related issues are some of the things that you see people about the most, or not? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very common uh, complaint that we see in the emergency department. And oftentimes, it's kind of a double-headed monster where there's kind of the exposure to heat and then some degree of dehydration. And um, that can affect different people to kind of varying degrees. Um, and, um, you know, especially in kind of the elderly population, we'll see kind of an increase in, in heat-related uh, complaints like uh, dehydration or heat stroke itself. Did I Do I remember that if for children and the elderly, it's this, the problem is that they don't feel they don't their body isn't able to monitor the effect of heat like adults can yeah i mean it's it's probably for a variety of reasons i mean one way or one reason for that is that uh kind of the the extremes of age just aren't able to communicate some of their symptoms and so uh kind of some of the vague symptoms that go along with um heat exhaustion or heat stroke uh like dizziness or confusion you might not really pick up on as much as uh, somebody who's who otherwise able to tell you kind of all the symptoms that they're feeling uh, so what's the treatment? What do you do if somebody comes in with a heat stroke, heat exhaustion? Obviously, you try to cool them down, but and how do you do that? And, and what's the treatment? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you try to kind of bring their body temperature back down to a more normal range. And oftentimes, just getting somebody into air conditioning, which... Um, 
I think I can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that all of the uh, emergency departments in the Mayo <laughs> Clinic Health System are, are air conditioned. Um, you know, just getting them into some air conditioning into some, you know with no humidity uh, will oftentimes kind of uh, abate some of those symptoms. But I'll, oftentimes, like I was saying, you know, there's a concurrent issue going on with some dehydration, and so oftentimes these folks need IV fluids um, and they need to be monitored. Typically, these people will get some blood work and be monitored closely for a period of time. What about uh, so that people don't have to come to the emergency room to see you? If, you know, you're out at a kid's ball game or you're running at a 5K or whatever, how do you, how can you recognize that you're starting to have some heat-related issues? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, oftentimes for kind of uh, early heat exhaustion, some of the some of the symptoms are fairly vague, but uh, some, some dizziness, uh, some nausea are kind of oftentimes the first uh, symptoms, uh, oftentimes a headache. And so really um, good hydration and then, and then staying out of the heat as much as possible. So finding some shade, finding some air conditioning if you're starting to feel those symptoms, and then really starting to uh, drink lots of fluids. And I'm not you know, talking about uh, Pepsi or anything like that. I think, you know, clear fluids is um, uh, kind of ideally what people ought to consume in those situations. Um, oftentimes when people run into dehydration in the emergency department and I'm sending them home, one uh, hydration strategy that I'll kind of suggest to them is if they buy a bottle of the uh, powdered Gatorade and then make that kind of at half strength, um, gives them some electrolytes, gives them a little bit of flavor, and I think, find people uh, kind of will uh, will be uh, a little bit more mindful of how many fluids they're taking. All right. Emergency room physician, Dr. Luke Wood. Time for a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, kids need to wait 30 minutes after eating before they swim. <laughs> it was we'll, an hour when I grew up. Yeah, we'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with ER doc, Dr. Luke Wood. Dr. Wood, great to have you with us. We're going to start off with a myth or matter of fact. Kids need to wait 30 minutes after eating before they swim. Dr. Wood, is that a myth or is that a fact? Ooh. Um, Ooh. <laughs> I'll, I'll, go with, I'll, I'll go with fact. Okay. Really? Because, well, you know, the theory is that, uh, at least my understanding is, mm-hmm. that uh, kids can kind of develop a side stitch or kind of a cramp, which can uh, impair their ability to swim. Um, I don't think it's a t- I think 30 minutes is probably a little bit on the generous side. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say I'm guessing more so kind of 10 or 15 minutes would be a little bit more uh, ah. more along the lines of reason. Yeah, well, you know what? I thought you were going to say, no, you can go right in the water after you eat. I mean, it, theoretically, is it that all the, uh, the blood flow of your body is going to your stomach to help digest your hot dog and that's <laughs> why your muscles aren't working so well or, or what's the, what's the, what's the reason behind it? I mean, when I grew up, it was 60 minutes. My mom wouldn't let me close to the water for 60 minutes. <laughs> she loved o'clock. you very, she loved you very much. I know, I know that. She's the reason I survived. <laughs> like I said, I thought that the, uh, kind of issue was that, uh, kids can develop kind of abdominal cramps or kind of side stitches when, uh, if they go in the water right after they uh, they eat. Um, I don't know. I've, I've, uh, I guess I've never taken care of a patient, uh, in the emergency setting who, who's run into this particular issue. All right. Well, let's talk about helmets. I bet you have had that issue come up. Uh, For kids and adults, helmets are mandatory? 
Um, they're mand- mandatory in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an avid bike rider, um, and I, so I think uh, the the um, importance of helmet use can't be really emphasized enough. Um, you know, specifically for bike riding, oftentimes uh, what happens, especially with little kids, is you've got kind of a, a collection of helmets in your in your garage, and in the springtime you go out and you start trying out which one uh, seems to work this year, and it's really I'm sorry, Im- which one looks the best? <laughs> or what? Yeah, sure, sure. That's the more important thing. <laughs> it used to be which one felt the best, but now it's which one looks the best <laughs> but a proper fit certainly is uh is necessary you don't want that helmet kind of uh jostling around on top of the kid's head um it's always a good idea to kind of go in at least maybe one time during the season especially kids who are growing like weeds to make sure that their helmet's fitting properly um really any of the local bike stores uh can help you out with that um i do think that a, that a good a helmet is is a very worthwhile investment if you actually make an in-store purchase instead of purchasing it online you can make sure that it's fitting your kid properly and uh and you know then the sales agent can can make sure that it's that's uh that's appropriately sized you better stick with the exercise oh very good i, I think so let's talk a little bit about uh drowning um uh, especially uh, in the uh, summertime with a little bit of alcohol on board, it's a, a not too uncommon problem. Uh, and then there's this issue of dry drowning, which I actually uh, hadn't hadn't heard the term used before. What's dry drowning? Sure. Well, this particular issue has kind of received some attention lately because of uh, some unfortunate uh, uh, events that have occurred around the country recently. But um, dry drowning is this idea where, um, you know, typically a child will survive a, a near-drowning incident, and then they'll develop uh, some some respiratory failure either hours or days on on down the road. Um, and there's really kind of two different um, uh, different processes that are ongoing, both of which are extremely rare. And I think it's important that listeners understand that, that these events truly are rare. Um, but uh, with a dry drowning, essentially what, what oftentimes happens is a little bit of fluid hits the vocal cords, and then those vocal cords go into spasm. Um, several hours to days later, there can be kind of an inflammatory reaction that exists down in the lungs that uh, causes some respiratory failure, again, typically occurring um, you know around the time where the initial near-drowning incident happens. But uh, you know kids or adults can become sick in the hours or days leading up to the event, or at following the event. So if someone does, if there is a near drowning, that is something that you want to watch out for in the coming days that follow. Sure. I mean, you know, anytime there's there's a near drowning incident, I don't I don't think it's a bad idea to to come into emergency Check department out. to be evaluated. Uh, generally speaking, uh, when people feel normal after a near drowning incident, they regain consciousness, they're acting like themselves, um, and they're not having respiratory symptoms. Um, almost all the time, those folks are generally out of the woods. Um, there are these rare cases where people will go on to develop some respiratory issues later on, uh, but that's either because of that dry and drowning incident or uh, sometimes if people aspirate some fluid at the time of their near-drowning incident, uh, that can cause an inflammatory reaction in the lungs that, again, uh, can develop some issues in the days following uh, a near-drowning event. So, so you get the water, uh, contaminated water, swimming pool water with chlorine in it, down into your lungs. So you basically aspirate. Correct, yeah. And then what was the other uh, cause of dry drowning that you mentioned? So then, so there's... Two different things. Yeah, there's kind of two different things. There's uh, the whole idea of dry drowning, which is where the uh, people have spasm of the vocal cords. Oh, so you can't breathe. Correct. Okay, correct. The, the, the vocal cords come together and block off your airway. Correct. Correct. Okay. And then there's this whole idea of, of secondary drowning, and a lot of uh, kind of um, uh, medical sources are 
and kind of getting away from the terminology secondary drowning or um, or dry drowning, but in this kind of secondary drowning, that's when there's a generalized inflammatory reaction in the lungs, usually due to some aspirated uh, water uh, uh, of some sort. Dr. Shives also mentioned alcohol, and you could say the effect of alcohol with swimming or boating or fill in the blank. I mean, how does uh, does alcohol have a special danger element to swimming? Is there anything? Good question. I mean, it's it's certainly one of the uh, kind of uh, most closely associated risk factors with uh, with drowning incidents, um, you know, and oftentimes we see kind of uh, two age groups that are effect- uh, particularly affected by by drowning: uh, kids less than five years of age, um, and that's often because of lack of parental supervision um, uh, and a variety of other reasons. Um, and then also kind of in the 15 to 25 age age range for males, and that's oftentimes when alcohol is involved. All right, we're coming up on July 4th. Are we going to air this program before July 4th? All right, so we got to ask you about fireworks. Tell us about, uh, you know, we all know that alcohol is sometimes involved, again, or not infrequently involved. Tell us about one of the more interesting fireworks injuries you've seen. Well, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I'd say well, or 12-year-olds are involved. There's fireworks <laughs> injuries all over the place. Well, let's see here. Uh, before, before moving back to Minnesota a few years ago, I was practicing emergency medicine out in Maine, and I was uh, practicing kind of in the rural part of Maine, and we had a really uh, uh, wet and rainy 4th of July one year, and one individual had decided to take a whole bunch of fireworks and duct tape them together and then (laughs) twist the fuse together and then cut the fuse short. Um, It didn't go well for him. Um, And so, you know, common sense is really kind of important uh, with with fireworks. Uh, You kind of nailed the, hit the nail on the head uh, that alcohol is oftentimes involved, but oftentimes it's from either... um, uh, user uh, uh, misuse of the fireworks or from like a faulty igniting system with the firework. So the thing blew up quite close to him. In his hand. Oh, oh my. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, we that's have a five-finger problem. Just yeah. a few moments left. Uh, what would be the last piece of uh, emergency room expert advice you want to share with our listeners? You know, common sense. We see kind of two varieties of, of uh, summer-related uh, issues in the emergency department, mild ones, which, you know, sunburn, uh, heat exhaustion, uh, poison ivy, that type of thing, and then more major ones. And so if there's anything I can emphasize to the listeners to try to minimize your risk to those kind of more major events. And so helmet use, uh, avoiding alcohol uh, when you're operating motor vehicles or um, when you're in the water, especially with little ones. Um, and, uh, you know, we touched a little bit on ATV use. Um, we always see uh, every summer a handful of patients who end up getting really injured uh, using ATVs um, when they don't really know how to or if they're using them after night and uh, they're not really a proficient rider. And so uh, whatever you're doing, uh, certainly use your brain and then protect your brain with the helmet. All right. We've been talking about summertime safety. And, yeah, just because it looks pretty doesn't mean it fits right. I like that. Protect your brain with a helmet. (laughs) We've been talking about summertime safety and drowning with ER physician Dr. Luke Wood. Thanks so much for being with us. And safe summer, everybody. Thanks for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Sanj Kakar joins me as co-host. We'll learn about the importance of play, even for adults. And later on in the program, Dr. Jake Strand takes a turn co-hosting. We'll get tips on keeping your picnic food safe in the summertime heat. It's his first venture as a co-host, Dr. Uh, Yeah, Good for him. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to Mayo Clinic Radio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Changes in your skin can be clues that there's an internal issue with your health. When the patient is concerned about that, their doctors will send them to see me, and I'll sort of canvas their skin to see if I can see any of the typical findings that could help with the diagnosis. And so it's sort of a um, detective work. Dermatologist Dr. Lisa Draghi says certain conditions can cause specific skin changes. Lupus can carry many skin issues, the most typical of which is a butterfly-shaped rash on the face. Thyroid disease can cause dry skin. Gluten sensitivity or celiac disease can trigger a super itchy rash called dermatitis herpetiformis. Itchy bubbles or um, blisters on usually the elbows, the knees, the back of the scalp. And stress can make you itch all over and prompt flare-ups of acne. Dr. Draghi says many people worry that a skin issue may be a sign of an internal problem. Sometimes there is. Many times I can just reassure them that they're okay. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Do you remember your school days? Many of us couldn't wait to take a break and head out to the playground. Recess was a daily part of life growing up, and childhood play is still recognized as an important part of brain development. But as we grow up, does our need for play change? Mm -hmm. Maybe not. The National Institute for Play is researching the importance of play at every stage of life, including adulthood. Here to discuss why adults need play is Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program Physical therapist, Danny Johnson. Welcome back to the program, Danny. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's a joy to be here. Thank you. Uh, the concept play for adults when all three of us are sitting here at work, I, I really like it yeah. a lot. So tell me, what does that mean when you say play for adults? What are you talking about? So Tracy, in our program at the uh, Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, we work with adults to try to really um, build their physical activity um, in a lot of cases, they come to us and they're very interested in ways to be physically active, but the gym setting hasn't worked for them real well. Um, they have a lot of responsibilities, a lot of kids at home, and they're looking for ways to integrate their world um, into their physical activity. So we use play in our program a lot of times to help help build their physical activity into their life. Danny, what sort of activities do you start to do to integrate that into their into their lives? Sure. So it's it's highly individual mm -hmm. uh, at the Healthy Living Program. We really want to take a look at at each individual um, and see what works in their life. So a lot of times, uh, for example, if they have a few kids, they don't have a gym membership. One of the biggest things we'll say is go out to the playground with your kids. Take them to the park. Um, when they play on the jungle gym, you play on the jungle gym. So, you know, enjoy your children. You're getting that time with your children that we all crave, um, but you're also helping your physical fitness. You mentioned the phrase gym setting, that in the gym setting. And for me... Uh, I don't really like gyms so much because I'm more of a social exerciser. Right. And unless I have somebody that, to go to the gym with me, right. I don't go to the gym. Absolutely. And, you know, Tracy, I think that's really um, a key thing right now. We're seeing this, you know, upswing of things like CrossFit. We're seeing a lot of the mud runs or the fun runs. Um, we're seeing people really resonate with those outlets and those ways of being physically active. And I do believe that socialization for a lot of people is a huge key. You know, if we go back to the fundamental of play, socialization is really at the heart of that. And so a lot of these uh, different settings uh, or fun runs
runs or, you know, playing tennis, those social ways of being active, I think that's why we're seeing a lot more of that. We need to integrate a lot more fun into our physical activity and not think of it as another thing to do, another piece of work. Well, that was the piece that I was curious about, the, the social concept, because I wonder, right. you know, for those who the gym hasn't worked, how does that social component increase maybe adherence or willingness to get out and do something that's outside of their comfort zone? Yeah, absolutely, Jake. You know, that there's a lot of studies that do indicate that when we work out with a buddy, uh, when we have that social aspect to our activity world, we stick with it. Um, there's somebody to report to. There's somebody to meet meet at the location you choose to go out and be physically active at. So, um, and and again, going back to play, you know, socialization, mm. um, having fun. You sort of forget about time a little bit, and that <laughs> yeah. makes so, you know physical activity so much so much more. There's a reinforcement so, there. Absolutely. I would never forget about time when I'm doing burpees, <laughs> no matter if I'm doing it with a hundred people or just myself. But how uh, you mentioned like CrossFit, yes. you know, they're a gym that is basically a fitness center that is right. basically just a social kind of club type thing. But right. how are regular gyms, traditional gyms and fitness centers right. responding to the social right. aspect? Well, I think you're seeing a lot more, again, uh, like the boot camps, you know, oh, you're yeah. seeing mm-hmm. you're seeing a lot more classes um, really coming to light. You know, that was always a, a popular form. But I think now a lot of gyms are really integrating a lot more of the social aspect. I know I have a sister-in-law who's a spin instructor up in the Twin Cities area, and they have all kinds of uh, different events that they throw. And after hours, you know, it's not just spinning anymore. So I think we are looking towards making physical activity a little bit more than just, I got to get to the gym. I got to run a half hour. I got to, you know, do this. So, you know, there's there's so much more to it. You know, it's mind-body. And we teach that, you know, in our program that wellness and health it goes way beyond just the act of physical activity. So I think we're seeing a lot more of that now. Yeah, and that, that's that's a. I'd be really curious to follow up a bit more about the concept of wellness because wellness yeah. is you know you mentioned not just about physical wellness yeah. but it's uh, also the community aspect. Absolutely. And so I, I wonder what is that? What kind of benefits does that give us as adults compared to kids when we think right. about when we think about right. play? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that you know play can be a little different in kids and adults, but it's not that different. You know, yeah. it's really not when you're when you're a kid and you meet your neighborhood friends and you're playing kick the can or, you know, there's a lot of social interaction and, and a lot of wellness, a lot of learning how to be in a society um, and, and be with your friends and have fun. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of that in adulthood as well. So we cannot forget about the benefits of play as they were as a child because they are the same for us as adults. You know, we, we need that in our lives. So you mentioned when you go to the playground with your kids... Dr. Strand's kids are little, so yeah. he's always going to win at tag. That's true. I have got preteens and teenagers, yeah. and I'm like the wounded deer at the watering <laughs> hole. I mean, it's like I'm the, I'm the easy pickings. They always go after mom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's say that you are at the at the playground with yeah. your or the area park yeah. with your grandkids yeah. or your kids. Yeah. What are some different things that you yeah. can do? Well, Tracy, you actually just hit on a great point because it's <laughs> not just parents. It's, it's mm-hmm. grandparents, too. So we want to bring play to all ages, all walks of 
of life. Uh, for an example, I was up at the lake this weekend, and my 74-year-old grandmother was down on the ground crawling. <laughs> you know, I'm a huge right. advocate of crawling. That's a whole other topic. Oh, but, that's right. Um, that's the first time we met that's you. That's exactly that's right. right. Yes, I'm a huge advocate of crawling, but crawling and some of those other fundamental movement patterns do go back to play. Mm. So, you know, you can get on the ground. You can um, just play silly, silly games. You know, even hopscotch, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, you're working on hand-eye coordination. You're throwing mm-hmm. a stone. You're hopping. Um, you're working all of the muscles of the lower body. You're working on balance. So really, any of those games from our youth, um, if you don't feel comfortable running and playing tag and all those things, think about some of the things that we used to do. You know, everything is... is able to come forward into our adulthood. In the summertime, we go to a local elementary school that's in our neighborhood, and we get our four square on. Yes. Four squares coming back. It's a great game. (laughs) And think about the smile. I mean, you're smiling just thinking about it. And see that one. I can hang with them. Yes. (laughs) You can do it together. You know, you got to do what works, Tracy. You got to do what works. But I think just, you know, even thinking back on that episode, it's bringing joy to your life. And I think sometimes in our world, we get so serious and we forget about that mind-body connection Mm -hmm. and we forget about wellness as a whole and we and we you know do things in our physical activity lives that we don't love and so you know i would really encourage everyone to give themselves permission to play and forgetting about not feeling Forget awkward about, about it, it. absolutely yeah. and that's a great point too jake because i think a lot of people don't want to look silly as they get to be an adult you mm-hmm. know um there was a post on mayo clinic uh, a little quote about play and I read through the comments, and one of the comments was, I have a job. Mm-hmm. I grew up. Mm-hmm. And to me, yes, you did. But that doesn't mean you can't have fun and do things you enjoy um, and give yourself permission to play. Yeah, We've been talking adults and play with physical therapist Danny Johnson of the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. Thank you so much for joining us today, Danny. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we discuss picnic food safety with the Mayo Clinic experts. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's picnic season and the time of year when reports of foodborne illnesses spike. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one in six Americans get sick by consuming contaminated foods or beverages each year. Ugh, salmonella infection, salmonellaosis, is that right? That's good. Okay, it's a common bacterial disease that affects the intestinal tract, causing nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Salmonella infection is usually caused by eating raw or undercooked meat, poultry, eggs, or egg products. Here to discuss food safety is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rajapaksi. It's nice to meet you. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to be here. How common is salmonella? Uh, so salmonella, up until this past year, used to be uh, one of the most common uh, causes of foodborne illness in the United States. This past year, uh, for bacterial causes of foodborne illness, it was overtaken by Campylobacter, another type of bacteria, for the first time. But we do know uh, each year in the United States, over a million people get sick from salmonella infection, and somewhere between three and 400 people will actually end up dying from it. So it is a serious condition and something that is uh, relatively common. And are there particular people at risk of getting salmonellosis? 
Sure. So uh, most otherwise healthy people, if they get a salmonella infection from something they eat or drink, uh, will have what we call a self-limited illness. So as you mentioned, they may have some uh, abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea, but usually this will go away on its own and doesn't usually need treatment in otherwise healthy people. However, there are certain people in the population who would be at higher risk of having a severe illness. Uh, this, we see this especially in young children or infants, uh, in the elderly population, or people who have problems with their immune system. These can be people who are uh, on medication that suppress their immune system, people with cancer or organ transplants. As a child growing up, we would go to India very often, and it would be called Delhi Belly there, Tracy. Oh, my. And so how would one know if this is due to salmonella or, for example, like Campylobacter that you mentioned? Sure. So there's a lot of overlap in the symptoms that people experience with foodborne illness. So based on the symptoms alone, it's really difficult to say exactly what the person has been infected with. It's also important to know that there's other uh, non-infectious causes of things like abdominal pain and diarrhea that you need to keep in mind as well. So just from hearing what someone's symptoms are, it's impossible to know exactly what causing it, though there are uh, some uh, exposures that we can look at, things that people may have eaten or had to drink that can point us in certain directions as to what they may be sick with. I'm just to clarify, a norovirus or something when it's people are not washing their hands and then that is spread through a restaurant if one of the food, you know, one of the workers has not washed their hands. That's Is that also considered a foodborne illness or is that just a different public health problem altogether? Yeah, so uh, there's, I think, over 250 different things that cause foodborne illnesses that we know about now. Wow. And so uh, they can be caused by viruses, by bacteria, by parasites. So norovirus would be an example of a type of virus that can cause foodborne illness. Um, there's also uh, things in food that can also make people sick, things such as toxins or certain chemicals um, that are not infections, obviously, but uh, can also make people sick from things they eat and drink. So maybe, Dr. Rajapaksi, you can set a, a score here with my wife. The other day, oh boy. We, we went out. Out and we had eggs <laughs> and uh, they were soft boiled and I thought that was okay. Is, is that okay or is there a risk of salmonella right there? The m- most common foods that we see associated with salmonella infection uh, include meat, uh, poultry and eggs. Um, and so anytime that you're eating uh, food that has not been heated to a high enough temperature to kill off the salmonella bacteria, you run the risk of getting infected with this if you ingest it. And so we do recommend uh, cooking eggs all the way through until the yolk is hard uh, to decrease your risk of foodborne illness. So you're telling me there's millions of mothers out there who used to uh, boil the eggs and you put soldiers in and dip the eggs for kids. I used to have that as a child and our kids have that. Is that not a good thing to do? So we definitely recommend uh, any eggs that are being fed, especially to children who are at higher risk of salmonella infection. Uh, that they be cooked all the way through to decrease your risk of foodborne Sanj, illness. Uh, so this sounds like you were wrong and your wife was right. Is that what I'm hearing? It's not, not the first time. Okay. Though. I hope I'm not causing any But you know here. what? I think he's right. Has the disease of salmonella or that, has that, um, Im- I don't want to say improved over the years, but I think we used to eat a lot of eggs with runny yolks and now hardly at all. Is it just because we know better or is it because people really are getting more sick? Um, I think it may be a combination of both. We are lucky to live in a country that has very strict uh, standards in terms of food production and has uh, certain standards and regulations in place to help protect us from all of these things. But um, certainly because our food now comes from so many uh, different places and in so many different ways, a lot of the times it needs to be transported over long distances. Uh, the risks are, are higher. If you are going from the, chick- the egg to the chicken, okay. Uh, if you have chicken that is, does have salmonella on it, if you, if you cook it long enough, then that kills the salmonella and it's not as much of a risk or it completely erases the risk. So there's a few important things when you're uh, preparing uh, meat products. So cooking meat or heating it to a high enough temperature uh, does significantly 
significantly decrease your risk of getting an infection from eating it. For chicken, for example, we recommend cooking it to an internal temperature of more than 165 degrees Fahrenheit um, to make sure that you kill off any bacteria that may be present. Um, but cooking alone is not enough. We have to be very mindful when we're preparing foods, It's getting into barbecue season, people mm-hmm. are grilling. Outdoors, and uh, we see cross contamination of different food products as a, a big issue. So, uh, if your salad greens come into contact with the juices from your chicken, you're not going to be heating that salad, and so that salad then becomes a potentially contaminated food that can make people sick. So, uh, when you're preparing these foods, it's really important to pay close attention to keep your uh, meat products very separate from your fruits, vegetables, salads. Make sure that you're washing your hands very well before you start preparing the food and in between uh, preparing different types of food. And then lastly, making sure that uh, you're serving and storing the food in a way that's safe. Uh, generally, you want to avoid keeping foods out in what we call the danger zone. So between 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 140 degrees Fahrenheit is kind Ooh. of the ideal temperature that bacteria like to replicate in. And so we recommend not leaving food out uh, for any more than two hours between those temperatures. Um, and uh, if the outdoor temperature is greater than 90 degrees Fahrenheit, we usually recommend cutting that back to an hour. Okay, if you're going to be at a picnic, though, I have to have, I have, to have potato salad at my picnic. It's just a necessity. Of course. If I am putting it in a bowl of ice that I think is keeping it cold enough, how do you know if I, I'm going to assume that I need to just stick a thermometer in there? If you're going to do that to a chicken to make sure it's over 165 degrees, what temperature do I want to keep that potato salad at? So generally, you want to keep it as cool as possible. Anything below 40 degrees Fahrenheit is. Thought to be more safe than above that, and so uh, the best way, and really the only accurate way to determine the temperature, is to use a thermometer. So I was just at a picnic this past weekend, and uh, somebody said, "How's the potato salad?" And I said, "Cold." <laughs> Great. <laughs> We all agreed that was good. So, yeah. so many people, uh, for example, on the weekend go food shopping, and they'll put their food in their trunk and go off and do other errands, and so that food has been sitting in the trunk for several hours. Oh my God! Is, is, is that a mistake that we've been doing? Yes. So. Uh, <laughs> That is kind of the ideal temperature that bacteria love to grow and replicate on. So any uh, meat that you've purchased that may be contaminated with bacteria, even if it were a small amount, that kind of creates an ideal incubator for the bacteria to grow and replicate. And if you then go on to uh, ingest the food, especially if it's not uh, cooked adequately, you could be putting yourself and your family at risk. Well, so I've been doing that for a long time inadvertently. <laughs> Remind me that if I'm ever invited to your house to make sure that your wife is in charge of all of that. Uh, often we go to a restaurant and some people will want their steak well done. But if you ask for it to well done, the waiter looks at you as an insult to the chef. And so people take it rare. What, what's your thought about that regarding salmonella? Sure. So there's um, an important distinction here between uh, different meat products. So steak versus hamburgers. For steak, uh, your risk of getting a foodborne illness is lower because uh, generally steak, uh, if it's contaminated, will be contaminated on the surface of the meat since it's not been ground. If the outside of the meat gets to a hot enough temperature, the, the bacteria that are there will be killed off. And it's quite unusual um, for bacteria to be present on the middle of the steak. So generally ordering a steak rare or medium rare is relatively safe uh, when it comes to infections like uh, E. coli or salmonella. So if you order a burger, on the other hand, it should be well done? Yes. So the difference is with uh, hamburger or hamburger patties, it's made up of ground meat. Usually that's come from multiple different uh, animals. And so if even one of the animals has some contamination, that goes into this pooled product. So your risk of having contamination is higher to begin with. The other thing is the bacteria can be present at the very center of the burger patty. And so if you order a burger rare or medium rare, 
and that middle section is cool or pink, um, any bacteria there could definitely make you sick. Keeping food safe at this time of year, any tips that you want to share? Some of the really important things are uh, just making sure that you uh, wash your fruits and vegetables uh, really well. It doesn't reduce the risk to zero, but it's one of the best things that we can do, especially for products that you're not going to be cooking or heating. Um, as I mentioned, kind of making sure that you keep meat and uh, vegetable products uh, apart and separated. Washing your hands is really the biggest thing. We know people that are infected with uh, salmonella or a lot of these other types of foodborne illness uh, they can shed the bacteria in their stool for prolonged periods of time, even after their symptoms have oh resolved. My. And so uh, proper uh, hand hygiene, especially when you're preparing foods for yourself and for others, uh, is also very important. We've been talking about food safety with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Nipuni Rajapaksi. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.